0: Modeling Christ-like behavior. Really, the last five weeks, we have talked about the power of modeling. I've called this series Spark. You can be a spark in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. A spark to model the lifestyle of Jesus. It's not enough for us to believe this. It's not even enough for us to proclaim it. We need to live it. We need to model a Jesus lifestyle. So in this final week of the Spark series, I want to talk about some of the actions that can provide a model, maybe not only a positive model, but sometimes if we're not careful, we can provide the wrong model for people. But before we get into today's lesson i want to review where we've been the last four weeks in this series called spark you can be a spark of forgiveness a spark of understanding a spark of kindness and last week we talked about a spark of generosity we talked about that igniting the spark of forgiveness forgiving other people by choice why because we have been forgiven by the grace of god We talked about igniting the spark of understanding. Not just trying to fit everybody into your perspective. Not just judging them or condemning them, but try to seek to understand the way that they perceive a situation or perceive the world in general. We talked about the spark of kindness. And we need to model kindness. We live in a world we do not see kindness modeled. So it's very necessary for you and I to raise the bar and say we are going to model the kindness of Jesus. No matter what everyone else is doing, we are going to be kind. And then, of course, we talked about the spark of generosity, about being a giver. Not just giving money, but giving time, giving talent, giving compassion. It means that you give first. It starts with you. And what you give comes back to you. Remember that from last week? The amount you give will determine the amount that you get back. That's just the law of harvest. And again, we're not just talking about money. This week, I received eight envelopes that contained a total of $830. They were from the church in Peshastan. Church out there has about 18 people right now between their Hispanic and their Anglo congregation. Those 18 people didn't want us to provide glass doors for them. They wanted us to just partner with them. It was a, 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 a challenge that we modeled for them. In fact, Pastor Jorge told me on the phone. He said, thank you for being the example. Our church has not had anything to achieve. We haven't had a goal. We haven't had a vision for a lot of years. And you came alongside us and you modeled what could be done. And I thought, man, it's not just us as individuals, it's us as a church in the Wenatchee Valley, not just as Wenatchee First Assembly, but as the church of Jesus Christ, we can model to our community. So this whole series have really been about modeling, about taking that first step toward making any situation better. And the four steps we've looked at in the previous weeks can really be summarized in this statement. I won't just tell you how it can be, I'll show you how it can be. I'll be kind, I'll be generous, I'll be understanding. See, it's not just a lofty theory. This is real stuff. So in this final session, I want to talk about how we can set an example for those who need to grow. And I've called this the spark of growth. You could call it the spark of progress, the spark of maturity. You get the idea. I'm talking about those In our life, who perhaps are weak in their faith, maybe they've actually wandered from the faith. Maybe they find themselves super vulnerable in situations. They're struggling to stand on their own. And you and I need to come in, and like that model show house or that model living room down at Walker's Furniture, we can ignite the spark of growth in other people. And we do that best by living and breathing Jesus, We can be a positive influence. We can also be a negative influence if we're not careful. There's a flip side, and Jesus warns us about that flip side of influence. In other words, doing things that will cause people to stumble. Let's look at Luke and the gospel that he wrote. Verse uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. And Jesus is teaching here about forgiveness, but he's also teaching about reconciliation. He says, One day Jesus said to his disciples, There'll always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? That would be a negative influence. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck, than to cause one of these little ones or weaker ones to fall into sin. Verse 3 says, So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. And if there's repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. And the apostle said to the Lord, Show us how to increase our faith. And the Lord answered, if you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. My first point today is that we need to model a higher standard of influence. See, everybody would probably agree, if someone asks you to forgive them, you should do that. Jesus is saying, no, you need a higher standard. If that person comes back time and time and time and time again, you need to be willing to say, I forgive you. On the converse side of that, when you give someone the idea through your words or your actions that it's okay to sin in one area or another, man, you're placing yourself in very dangerous spiritual territory. Because you are still influencing that person, but to stumble. And you know, people have this tendency, we take our behavioral cues from others. Well, I saw so-and-so do that. Well, that's the way that so-and-so operates. Well, that's the way my dad always did it. Well, I'm pretty sure I saw my pastor do that, so it must be right. On and on we go, we tend to take are behavioral cues from others. And I know some of you are thinking, oh well, there's people probably watching your life because you pastor a church, but I'm here to tell you, people are watching your life. Your kids are, your grandkids are, your neighbors are, your business associates are watching your life. And if you proclaim to be a Christian, you are representing Jesus Christ. And if you attend this church and worship here, whether you're a member or not, In essence, you are representing Wenatchee First Assembly. We have influence on those that are watching us. They are looking to us. Oh, they know what we say we believe. But what do they see in the marketplace? Do they see anger and unforgiveness and judgment? Oh, we can preach and proclaim the gospel all we want. But again, a picture is worth a thousand words, It's our lifestyle. And Jesus is saying here, man, you've got to have a higher standard of influence, not just like the world does. Man, it goes without saying that it's foolish for anyone to follow the bad example of other people. However, in the context of the message today, I want you to think about not how other people are influencing you and your behavior, but how does your behavior influence others for good or maybe not for good? Because people are watching you. They're taking their cues from you. Your coworkers and your neighbors and your behavior inevitably will influence the behavior of other people. Take for example someone who is slacking off at work. They're giving the boss less than a full day's work for a full day's pay. Oh, they're surfing the web. They're calling their friends. Instead of 15-minute breaks, they take 22-minute breaks. They're They're just not putting in the effort that they should be, even though they're receiving a full day's pay. Now, that's bad enough in itself. But that person, in effect, is stealing from their employer... And they're also setting an example to other people who are watching. They say, oh yeah, Jerry's been there for 20 years, so I guess if he can get away with it, I can get away with it too. And that's why Jesus said, man, we have got to watch our behavior. We've got to be careful, friends. An easy trap to fall into is that attitude that, well, you know, it's not wrong when I do it, it's only wrong when someone else does it. And we all fall into that trap sometimes. But Jesus does not buy that argument. Not at all. In fact, our attitude according to the scriptures is, man, it's actually worse when I do it. Because Jesus wants me to have a higher standard. Jesus gives us that warning. Very simply in verse 3, he says, watch yourselves. He said, don't keep a scorecard on everybody else. Watch yourselves and hold yourself to this higher standard. And it's something that we all need to remember. Watch yourself because others are watching you. So it's a higher standard of influence. But secondly, it's a higher standard even when it comes to forgiving and reconciling. Scripture says if another believer sins, rebuke that person. And if there's repentance, forgive. And if that person wrongs you seven times a day and turns to you and asks for forgiveness, and you've got to raise the bar and you need to forgive them. Jesus is talking here about the process of restoration. I mean, it's inevitable. Offenses will come. We live in a world where we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all have a propensity for selfishness. We all think the way that we see an issue is the only way that that issue can be interpreted. So it's inevitable. We will be offended and we will offend others. And that's why it's good for us to look at what does the Bible say? What is the standard when we have to reconcile? We have a higher standard. And Jesus actually breaks this down into three phases. And you are like the first phase because it says, if a brother sins against you, rebuke him. And you say, amen, I can do that, Pastor. Yeah, I'm, I got the spirit of rebuke. I can do that. Yeah, that's good. Rebuke them. I don't mind to do that. And the Scripture does say that. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But a lot of us do have that attitude, is that, man, I don't mind pointing out other people's mistakes and, you know, letting them know the way it is. But then Jesus says, if during that dialogue, that you're pointing that mistake out, that you're correcting them, that in love you're sharing truth, it's a rebuke, not like a a judgment. But if in that process they repent, then you forgive them. And I think most of us could even go that far and say, well, yeah, we understand that's essential. We understand if we don't forget, it's like a poison that that, you know eats our soul up. And we kind of get that. So, yeah, we'll, we'll forgive them if they repent. And then, man, Jesus, as he always does, he raises the bar even farther. And there's this third element here. And he says, even if they sin against you seven times in the same day, And seven times they come back to you saying, oh man, I blew it again. I repent. I need your forgiveness. And now I know many of you are kind of getting lost here. You're saying, okay, well, I'm up to forgiving them one time, but I don't know about this. That's a little over the top. (laughs) Jesus never said it would be easy to live a lifestyle that would be in harmony with his values. It's not easy to bless somebody who is cursing you. It's not easy to give someone not only your shirt, but your coat. It's not easy. But we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us that we might rise to the occasion, that when the bar of expectation gets higher, we can say, Holy Spirit, come and help me. Help me to forgive again. Help me to try again. Help me to give mercy again. Help me to rebuke again, whatever it might be. See, most people aren't willing to hold themselves to such a high standard of mercy. Oh, they'll forgive you once, maybe twice if they really like you. But seven times in a single day? Come on, get out of here. That just seems impossible. But let me tell you a secret about the process of restoration and reconciliation. It rarely happens just one, two, and it's over. If you're willing only to extend others a second chance, you probably won't have much success in helping them. And we're talking about modeling for others. You won't have much of a chance in helping them experience the kind of restoration that leads to growth in their spiritual life and healthy relationships and progress and victory. That doesn't mean you let people walk over you. You're not a marshmallow. It doesn't mean that you let them off the hook. That's a whole different teaching. But that's not what I'm talking about. It means, though, each time you take him back to step one. Jesus said that we're to rebuke those who sin against us. And rebuke, again, does not mean that you're angry. It doesn't mean that you yell. It doesn't mean that you manipulate. It doesn't mean that you insult them or you ridicule them. That's not what Jesus wants us to do. Doesn't mean that you try to, you know, place yourself in a superior position either. Because, man, we've all had offenses, and we have all offended. Every one of us. So this rebuke is reconciliation. It's, It's a way of confronting a problem that is conducive to restoration and healing. And then when they come back the sixth or seventh time, say, you know, let's talk about this. Maybe we need to reestablish our boundaries. And there's a lot of parents that need to reestablish boundaries with their children and with their grandchildren. Let's agree on the terms of accountability. Let's figure this out. Let's make our relationship what God intends for life. Let's not just talk about it. Let's not just believe it because it's in the Bible. Let's live it. And I know that's hard, but the Holy Spirit helps us. And when you're truly committed to restoring someone who is weaker or who has fallen, who has stumbled, you need to settle in for the long haul. Because it might take more than just once or twice to get it right. I so much appreciate one of our ladies in the church who has stood by her husband, who has been incarcerated multiple times. He's actually a member of our church. I baptized him in the last couple years. And I am proud of the way this church, even though he he seems to get out and then be reincarcerated and then out again and reincarcerated, I'm proud of this church for not giving up on him. Because we understand it's a reconciliation, it's a restoration He is relearning behavior. There's boundaries that need to be set. And as a church, we're doing the right thing, not by saying, oh, yeah, we we figured he would end up in prison again. No. You speak words of faith to that person. You walk with that person. You understand if that person really wants to become whole, that we need to be committed to that process. That's what it means seven times in one day. And when you show, and when a church shows such a a determination toward reconciliation in the lives of others, that begins to ignite that spark of growth, particularly to those who need to grow in that area. I know it's tough, and that level of commitment to restoration is pretty rare, you know. Can you think of somebody that has that level of commitment? I can. His name is Jesus. And no matter how many times I go back to Jesus and say, Lord, I tried my best, but I messed up again. Lord, I'm sorry that I let that come out of my mouth. I'm sorry for my pride. I'm sorry for my anger. Every single time, if I'm sincere coming back to Jesus, He's there with open arms, and He is for you too. He's full of grace, He's full of mercy. And if you and I experience that kind of restoration, that kind of commitment from Jesus, that level of mercy and grace that he gives us, man, we need to extend that same level of commitment to our relationships. That those that have been affected by offenses have been broken, can come back into a a sense of healing and wholeness. And those relationships can be healed. In the next verse, and this is my final point today, it's interesting that Jesus says that we need to model a higher standard of faith-filled living. And I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus told his disciples they had to forgive even seven times a day, and their response was this. Show us how to increase our faith. (laughs) That's where some of us are. Show us, Lord, how to increase our faith. They were saying, man, that takes a lot of faith to forgive somebody seven times a day. But listen to Jesus' answer. It almost sounds like he's changing the subject, but he really isn't. He starts talking about the power of faith as small as a mustard seed. And I want you to notice two things particularly about his response when the disciples said, we need more faith to live this kind of life, to model this kind of forgiveness and uh, reconciliation. The first detail he refers to is the size of a mustard seed. And we know that in this day that this was written, it was about the smallest thing you could ever imagine. And he's saying, in effect, you don't need any more faith. You just need to use and activate the faith I've given you. The Bible says that we've all been given a measure of faith. Now, we just want more. It's our American consumerism mentality that has bled over to our understanding of the gospel. More, Lord, more. We just want more, 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 more. Like just selfish kids. And Jesus says, man, can't you use the little bit that I already gave you? It's not easy. It's hard. This walk of being a true disciple is difficult. But Jesus said, man, pick up your cross. And follow me. Be sold out to me. Use the faith I've given you. And the second detail I want you to notice and I want to make sure I get this right. It says, in verse, uh, in verse 6, it says, take the faith as small as a mustard seed and say to this mulberry tree. I want you to understand you need to vocalize it. You say it. It doesn't say you know it, you read it, you hear it. You believe it. You understand it. It says you must vocalize. I don't know how many sermons I've preached over the years. The power of life and death is in your tongue. There is something so critically powerful about our confession. And here we see it again. Jesus is telling us, take that little bit of faith you have and say to the mulberry tree, He's saying that the demonstration of faith begins where? With your words. The demonstration of your faith begins with your words. It's not a matter of just thinking it, wishing it, believing it. It's a matter of actually saying it, proclaim it. And when you speak words of faith in any context, you're putting the rest of the world on notice. Hey, man, this problem is not as insurmountable as we might think. This situation is not as hopeless as it, it seems to be. I believe God is going to do something. I See, Jesus wasn't changing the subject here. He was talking about restoration before, and now he's talking about faith, but they are intricately interlaced. He's amplifying it. He's talking about the kind of example that we model for other people. And now take a, take a minute and think about how powerful it would be if we use faith-filled words to model and influence the people around us when it comes to relationships. Instead of condemning the guy who's reincarcerated and saying, oh, I knew you'd end up back there. Also, you blew it again, huh? Well, I was wondering if you could keep clean this time. Man, those are damaging words. What if we take Jesus' advice here? We have faith-filled verbiage. Hey, God is going to do something. Hey, don't give up on the brink of your miracle. Hey, I'm glad that you know that you messed up and you want to do better, whether it's the first, second, third, or fourteenth time. And encourage that person. Imagine if we make it a point to speak only words of faith and hope to people around us. That models something. I was in a situation this week, and it just seemed everything was negative. And I really didn't know what to say. So I simply said, you know something? I believe, with God's help, tomorrow's going to be a better day. Tomorrow's going to be a better day for you. I really believe it. Let's pray. Let's believe it. Let's expect it. Faith-filled words as a model. Man, when you're dealing with a conflict, when you need to correct someone who's stumbled, can you imagine saying, hey, you're going to get back on your feet. Hey, God's for you. I'm for you. We'll figure this out. It's so important. Can you imagine how powerful those words are? I shared with you part of my testimony while I was in third grade, still struggling with my speech impediment. And the third grade class was going to put on a a play. And Miss Fithian said, Jerry, I want you to have this part. And I thought, oh good, I'm going to be a tree. Yeah? (laughs) But it was a speaking part. My teacher was giving me a speaking part, and no one could understand me because of my speech impediment. You know what that did for me? It, it still impacts me to think that she believed in me enough to give me a speaking part and put me on that stage. Oh, it wasn't a long speaking part. But I'm telling you, her words really helped form and change my destination. Because she could have said, well, Jerry, I know you probably would like a speaking part. But obviously, no one can understand you. So here, you're going to be a tree. That's what I was expecting, but it's not what I got. We need to make sure that words of faith are proclaimed based on Scripture that will make a huge difference and model in people's lives. Man, creating this kind of spark of lasting change requires more than just have a nice day. <laughs> you know, we have, to, we have to settle in for the long haul with a commitment to live out the same kind of example, the same kind of mercy, the same kind of faith that we see demonstrated in the life of Jesus. You know, most people know or have some understanding that God loves them and that God's willing to forgive their sin. They've heard about it. Maybe they've been to church. Maybe they've read about it. But I want to ask you, have they seen it? Have they seen it in your life? Have they seen the transformation that Christ has made in you? Not just saving you, but helping you in these areas of understanding and being kind. And being generous and being forgiving and and being a spark for growth in their life. Our community is full of people who are desperate to have hope. And the hope is not going to come from any other place other than Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives people hope. So what I'm challenging you today is to be the example that will spark growth and give hope to those around you. And particularly to those who are weaker in faith, that have stumbled, who have come back time and time again yet they still come back, let's follow the scriptural example because our example has the power to ignite a Spartac in others and to set them on a path of growth in their own relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's not always easy to serve you and to follow after the teachings of our Lord Jesus. Lord, it's a lot easier just to spout off what we're feeling instead of pausing and letting your Holy Spirit show us things through your eyes. But God, in the last five weeks, we've studied some areas that you have fundamentally taught those who have wanted to follow you throughout the centuries. And I pray that each of us will pledge to be a spark, a positive spark that will change the culture and the climate of our homes Our businesses, our church, our community. Help us to be more like you in forgiving, in understanding, in being generous. And Lord, help us to be a model of what it really means to grow as a Christian. None of us are perfect, God. We've all failed. But help us to understand that you have a higher standard and that we're to go the extra mile. We're to give the, the coat along with the shirt. Help us, Lord, to realize that even if someone messes up and comes back and wants to try again, we can be a spark of growth by encouraging them, by standing with them, by helping them. May our words always be filled with faith and hope and lead people to Jesus. We love you today, Lord. Help us to not only believe, but to live, to live the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this final chord.